Good evening, everybody, and welcome to ACCA and our public program this evening as part of Belinda de Broca's We Are All Flesh exhibition. Uh, we are joined tonight, we'll start on the end here with Juliana Engberg, who is very at home here at ACCA as our artistic director. Claire Rankin in the middle from the Melbourne College of Divinity, and Rachel Conn, who's joining us from Sydney, who is the producer and presenter of Radio National Spirit of Things. So I'm sure you may have heard her on your, on your airwaves. I'm going to hand you straight over, and you will get to know these ladies as the evening progresses. Thank you so much, and thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. And it's wonderful to be here. Of course, it's a black hole because it's Melbourne. Everything in this building is black. Except, of course, the wonderful spaces, which I hope we've all had time to wander through and reflect. I, I must say I was fortunate to be here in the morning when there was hardly anyone here. In fact, I think I was about the only one in the rooms. And I think that's the most ideal way to see these pieces. So welcome all, and I, I hope in our conversation with Juliana and Claire, um, you'll get a deeper insight into some of this work. Um, but first, I, I want to start with you, Juliana, because you've had the longest association with Berlinda de Bruyere. Is that how you pronounce it? It's it's quite difficult because it's Flemish. It's Belinda de Bruyere. De Bruyere. De Bruyere. I've said it once. <laughs> it takes a lot of practice. You know, uh, it, it's one of those complicated names. Yeah. Can we, can we have leads it. Yes, let's call her Belinda. Yes, I'm going to call her Belinda. Uh, and I will say that in the North American fashion, so we pronounce the other. Right? Yes, why not? <laughs> Juliana, when did you first come across her work? I think it was 2003 or four, And the first works that I saw of Belinda's were absolutely extraordinary, quite different in character to these. I, I found these slumping, lumping forms uh, on the floor, on the, on the low cliffs in the gallery, and uh, they looked like animals, and they were like animals, but they were decapitated, the hooves were gone, the sort of, the thing that would have given a charge to the body was absent. Yes. The mind and the the motor in the kind of way. And my, my first reaction was a, a sort of um, recoil, I suppose, in fashion. I, I, I thought, oh my goodness, what is this? But they were very tender very quickly, if I can put it that way. To me, they started to actually take on a, a very sympathetic character. And so I, I was able to approach them and look at them and consider them and go around them. This is one of the wonderful things about sculpture, that you can begin an engagement of that kind with a real physical Presence, and I just thought they were sort of superb, and then I forgot about them. Julie, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. And then a little bit later, someone was uh, showing me some books about some other things. I'd gone to see someone in London about something. He said, "I've only just met you, but I think I think you would really like this artist. I'm going to just wait a minute." So I pulled out this book, and I thought, "I I love this artist." Mm. By this time, Belinda had moved on a little bit, and she was beginning to explore the, the human body. She was um, moving toward this use of wax, uh, this quite visceral character work. And again, I fell in love with it. And it was like, <coughs> instantly I thought, yes, 
I have to do something with the diamonds. I have to bring them to Melbourne. Well, obviously, obviously, her work spoke to you enough to want to commission, commission these works. And I know that you have spent quite a bit of time with her. When you commissioned this uh, show, were you very specific in any way, or was it just kind of open-ended? How involved were you in in uh, kind of directing it? Yeah, the commissioning process is quite a lengthy one. It's a, it's a very trusting relationship as well. Uh, you respond to a person's work and you hope that you have a sympathetic environment in which they will, you know, work to which they will respond. So I went to visit uh, Belinda in her studio in Ghent, in Belgium, and I said to her, I would really love to do something with you. Uh, she said, would you like to do a, a survey? I said, no, I think I would really like to ask you to consider making a new work. Oh, she said, really, a new work all this? You know, I mean, that is, that is quite a gift to an artist, but it's also a reckless uh, adventure because, you know, anything could happen. I said, I think you would need to come to Melbourne to actually look at my space. It is a very particular kind of space. Uh, and I think when you see it, you will respond strongly to it. I think it has a character in it that, that you will find very compelling. I think you may find it quite cathedral-like. Uh, and so I brought Belinda across, that was two and a half or so years ago, and she came and she spent a few days here, went down to Mona then, I think, with her partner, Peter Guggenbrot, also a very good artist. And then she came back and she said, yes, you are completely right. I think of this space like a cathedral, and what I will do is I want people to approach and go into the space, have the length of the space to actually deal with something, and then I will use the three side spaces as a, as a form of um, chapel, if you want. So we left it at that. I thought I would probably get a Ghent altarpiece or something yes. and whatever. And then progressively over a number of years, I visit the studio process uh, quite a number of times and see the progress of the work. And when I first saw the very, very early uh, version of the Conjoint Horses, I just thought, wow, wow. She, she has nailed it. Well, exactly. And I want to ask you, um, before I, I turn to Claire, I want to ask you what you think she nailed with that, because uh, she has worked with horses a lot, and she does say that there is a relationship between man and horse, and of course one thinks of war and farming and that kind of thing. But is there more than that that she's referring to? Yes, I think... I mean, from Belinda, I think the horse is um, a metaphoric carriage. Uh, it, it represents the whole body, the everybody, in a kind of way. Uh, there's a certain kind of nobleness of character with a horse. We give we give to the horse a lot of uh, emotion ourselves. You know, we talk of horses as being heroic or courageous, and you know, we give it a lot of um, human attributes and fashion. And so. I think she, she takes that animal as a, as a kind of conveyance to ourselves uh, in many respects. The way I think she's nailed it is that she just understood that in this space you need a majesty and uh, you, you need something that is awesome, perhaps a little terrifying and um, equally sublime. I think she managed to actually create something that gave us the next version of the sublime in certain ways. And the reason I know she's nailed it is because of the physical reaction that people have when they come to the space. 
the very first thing they do at the entry here is invariably, almost to a person, they go, oh, like that. Oh, they take and breathe. And this is a very interesting thing because um, Edmund Burke, the, uh, the philosopher of the sublime, and, uh, in a very early um, contemplation of these things, talked about the physicality of, the, of, of ourselves as we encounter uh, the sublime. And one of the things that we do is we, we make ourselves bigger in order to contemplate the sublime. We open our eyes, we take in air, and that makes our bodies bigger in order for ourselves to become resilient to something that we are awestruck by or that perhaps we fear, uh, that we're, we're trepidatious about. And so when people come to the front of the space and go, oh, they're taking in that breath, they're making themselves large to encounter this unknowable, ineffable thing that's huge, domineering, possibly terrifying, maybe very horrible, but something that they need to encounter. I, to me, it's like life. Mm. That's a wow, you know, that's wow. a wow word, really. Well, I see a lot of death there as well. Yes, and, of course. Uh, Claire, I want to ask you, I wouldn't normally ask this as a first question uh, to an expert in art, uh, but really, I need to know, what was your personal emotional reaction to this work? Mm. And of course, there are several works, but... Mm. Mm. Uh, I think, and to some degree, um, my experience was mediated by the fact that I, of course, had Googled Belinda, <laughs> as, and, you as you do, and, you know, confessing is an art historian that we don't always just look at works in situ, we, we do look at reproductions, and so, of course, they do condition our reactions. So I had some sense of... Um, the imagery that she was using um, of some of her subject matter. Uh, and I guess, so that was in the back of my mind. And then when I walked in and then walked through the exhibition, I suspect my original, my, my first, that visceral, which is a very topical word, was one of the weightiness of the exhibition, the weightiness of her endeavours and and perhaps to a real sense of the heaviness and sobriety of what she was contemplating and perhaps communicating. Uh, and I think I thought this is a very earnest artist and, and a certain, hmm, I have to, the first word I must admit that comes into my mind is actually a sort of a, a German slang word, the word dumpf, a dumpf, a very, which is not disconnected from the idea of the flesh. The dumpf meaning, meaning heavy, dumpf meaning solid, uh, and that is something that I sense at least through my senses um, when I saw the, the work uh, of the sort of distended intestines being cradled, um, uh, there's a sense of them almost being sort of sausages as well. I'm going to ask you more <laughs> about that um, because I, I I do think that uh, the reaction that one has to this work is very important. I mean, you said dump heaviness. It's very interesting that Belinda talks about how exhausting it was to make those horses. How 
how what a long and arduous, almost burdensome process it was to also put them up. And I was wondering how fragile they are. They um, they they look huge and humongous. But um, Juliana mentioned the metaphorical, and 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 uh, I must say I think of Eros and Thanatos right away because of the horse being the image of virility and sexuality. Yes. And eroticism, and, mm. and yet the death of blackness, mm. the terrible mm. death of mm. a horse, which I think in Melbourne must be pretty, pretty <laughs> sensitive, you know? I mean, we've got black caviar, we've got the, the, the horse, horse race. Bar, we've had five. Horses are pretty, pretty important to Melbournians. I mean, to see them strung up and dead is, I think, very confronting. And I think people should be horrified, at least initially. But I want to ask you, uh, Claire, about Belinda's setting, because after all, there she is in Ghent. Uh, mm -hmm. She is in Belgium, a very Catholic. A very Catholic country. And she's so, I was so interested, um, Juliana, when you said your, um, your, your first contact with her, um, registering that she was from Ghent. And you, you said exactly my first reaction, which was, ah, Jan van Eyck's Ghent altarpiece. Now, I'm sure all of you, when you think of, of Ghent, you think of the Ghent altarpiece as, you know, the northern Sistine ceiling, the northern Sistine chapel, you know. The Ghent altarpiece is, is to Flanders and to northern Renaissance art what Michelangelo is um, to Italian art. And is that the martyrdom of St. Erasmus? No, 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 it's not the martyrdom. And it's actually a work which I think conjures up some of the some of the ideas that Belinda refers to, which is the idea of transmutation, transformation, um, material uh, becoming something else, as in wax becoming flesh. Um, Jan van Eyck does exactly, plays with exactly the same metaphors, where paint becomes flesh, becomes glass, becomes the most delectably beautiful textile. So, so there are similar ideas, but obviously Belinda is, is resourcing and referring to um, a different tradition than, than what we might associate with the Ghent altarpiece and Jan van Eyck. And that's a tradition which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, I, I know Juliana will be. It's the 16th century um, still life tradition, which has, has two marvellous exponents, both Flemish, Peter Erickson and um, Peter Boyklager, Erickson's nephew. Both of these artists have a preoccupation and a fascination with animal flesh, with hunks of meat, meat <laughs> calf on display, but juxtaposed with a tiny little narrative. And the the, um, uh, the prod for the viewer historically, and I think today, is what's the relationship between the tiny little narrative, in some cases a scriptural narrative, something from the 
Old or the New Testament, and the marketplace narrative, this voluptuous display of carnality. That's what I see something of in Berlinda's work, but I don't, but I looked for the other part of that dialogue. Well, hold on to the narrative thing. We'll talk about that a bit later. But let me ask you about the other presence in Europe, Catholic Europe, mm -hmm. the saints, ah. the relics, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the importance of those items and how they mm -hmm. might be being expressed mm -hmm. in, in her work. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of inside me. Inside me, yeah, in, inside me. I think, first of all, the idea of containment. Uh, when we walk into the room where we have those very large cabinets and we have the, the um, remains of trees, of branches, of um, in, entwined forms, uh, there are many, many reminiscences, many associations we might make. One might be a natural history uh, museum. But how many of you have been to the treasuries of cathedrals and walked through room upon room where similar cabinets are filled with reliquies, filled with little reminders, little carnal reminders of these fabulous personalities who are remembered in these most um, uh, uh, memorable contacts. They were called contacts reliquies. You know, it's through something that we see, we touch, we experience through the senses that we recall their stories. This was the lifeblood of you know, the majority of Catholic Europe, pre-Reformation Europe. Uh, it is still something that is lived with, um, that is in no sense a, um, an oddity in Catholic Europe. And I wondered whether in some sense that might be echoing some of Berlin's imagery mm. as well. That's so interesting because I think it is a religious sensibility that's very different. You know, you have the morbidity of Catholicism in various parts of Europe, and you have the you know ultra spiritualization of the body in Protestant Europe. But Julianne, I wanted to ask you about how these um, how these. It's very interesting. This is called "We Are All Flesh," but then when you go to the the vitrine at the end, uh, which is just numbered. The yeah, 019. 019. That, that, that's the title of the work because that's the number of the cabinet. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful, sort of um, like a museum yeah. in, in, in a way. And yet, those branches, those branches look like they have blood flowing through yes. the veins. And I want to ask you at this juncture about her process. How she accomplishes this, this look, this sense of life, human life in yeah, the I mean, it, branches. It's a tremendous process. Uh, when you go to the studio, there are pots and pans and um, burners and bubbling things. And uh, 
Belinda started life as a painter. I mean, she's, she's one of those artists who's moved from the two-dimensional into the three-dimensional. And in, in essence, really, all of these sculptures are, are to some extent also paintings because the process is uh, a pigmented one. Uh, each of the wax forms is uh, layered with different colours, etc. It's very intricate. She won't tell me. It's the, you know, um, sort of oh, chemical. No, it's the, it's the Colonel Sanders of art, you know, the secret, secret herbs and spices. But, you know, that she has this amazing methodology where she knows in an alchemical fashion uh, what, what she has to do to bring certain things through. And this is why when you look at something like inside me in the cradle, you, you feel as though you're looking at viscerality. You feel as though you're looking at sinew. You feel as though you're looking at something deep inside the flesh as well as the external part of the flesh. Or the flayed things, you know, I mean, it can be quite irksome at times. But it is an, an astonishing process. It takes a terribly long time. Everything has to settle and, you know, come, come up. When things cool, certain um, reactions happen with colours and things come forward. In a, so it's a, it's a very, very long process. In her studio, there are many, many, many tables that have discarded limbs and bits and pieces and, because, you know, it takes a, a, a terribly long time to perfect it. Mm -hmm. So there are many experiments, many failures, um, you know, a, a kind of mausoleum of, you know, um, forgotten things mm -hmm. that could be reconstituted. Uh, and, and redeveloped as something else a little bit later on. But I, I mean, I love, I love the fact that, you know, in the cabinet, the trees obtain this kind of fleshy quality. So they are in a kind of Ovid uh, storytelling metamorphosis. So I, it's, yes. it's, it's, it's so charming, that work. It's just gorgeous, you know. I want you to wax lyrical. Wax a bit metaphorical, perhaps. I mean, the tree, the sacredness of trees, the sacred cult of trees mm. in in pagan Europe. Yeah. I wonder whether she is alluding. I, I think so, and I mean, I think that in Belinda you have an artist who is bold enough, brave enough to be prepared to co to cohabit mm. uh, the, the Christian um, spirituality with the pagan. Mythological and, and produced very closely intertwined in Europe, but, but they are always, you and know, I mean, of course, they cannot be separated at all. But to entwine them once again, um, to produce a, a contemporary synthesis, which I think means that her works have so many responses in us because we come to it with certain aspects of ourselves, whether we're humanist or whether we're Christian, whether we're you know, pagan or whatever our background is, we, we bring these things to the fore and I think I think she's remarkable this way but for me it, there's a very vivid uh, connection to mythology mm. and with the conjoined horses you, you talk about Eros and Thanatos um, I also think of the, the conjoined lovers you know who are uh, in some way fatally um, forced to transform so I think of mm. you know Diane and Actium, Actium. or I think of um, you know all, all of those people who are sort of Put upon by the the, the gods, you know, in a sort of um, mean-spirited sort of fashion, and who, you know, transform or, or the beauty of the transformation. And I think this is this is part of Belinda's process. Also, she is she is eager to bring back a certain liveliness, life to things that you know have departed. 
The horses, you know, which I'm sure you all understand, are not horses. They are not taxidermy things. They are sculptures. Um, the only remnant part of the horse that's there is the hide. Uh, and I think a lot of the time people are very anxious about the fact that they're looking at actual creatures. But it is such a respectful process. It, uh, to me, it is almost like a... Um, like an embalming or a, sort of, or a swaddling kind of process that willing to engage with because she selects the horses who are sadly, you know, on, on, in a terminal fashion in the veterinary um, hospital at the university in Ghent. And she goes and she looks at them. She doesn't always use every horse that she is offered. She chooses the ones with particular musculature and, and with a sort of interesting form and nobility, a size that's important to her for the particular occasion. And then she will, she will work on that form for a number of days to actually cast the horse. So what you, what you see here is, in fact, the cast of that creature, now, now no longer there. But the musculature, the, the form of the horse, the nobility of the animal is, is almost kind of given back to us, given back to the horse. And then the use, I think, of the skin uh, gives a lot of veracity to that. And so that, that's why I think people are so um, taken aback, really, when they first encounter it, because it, it's just so beautifully done. But it is a transformation, and it's, it's, it's like giving, giving a certain eternity to these things, really. I think it's, that's I think an it's interesting really beautiful. idea, which I think we'll I got come back to. I was talking yes, about a lot of these lines. We'll yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Well, this is a woman who clearly is comfortable with death. And walking around these knackeries um, or whatever they call them, uh, where old horses go to die. Is that what they're called? That's where horses yeah, go to die. Go, sometimes, go to die. yes, knackeries. Or, um, you know, university labs where there are carcasses lying around. It's, it's interesting, of course, she was the daughter of a butcher, so she would have seen lots of entrails in buckets. She would have seen pieces of discarded bits of a body, you know, the ears, the head, the hooves, the things lying around. So my reaction actually to her is, is that this is a person who has been horrified as a child and who has turned her horror into affection, a kind of inversion, which is possibly why she says about her work that I try to make sculptures that are both frightening and comforting. Now, what a psychological space is that to be in? It's a cathartic space, and I think, I think you're completely correct. I think as a child, that is a traumatic thing to encounter. Even if, you know, your father is a butcher and he talks to you logically, dispassionately about... Yes. That. But children it, have it, a natural... No, it goes into... Look, my, my father took me to an abattoir when oh. I was quite little. Um, that's a cheap way of getting meat. Uh, he, he knew somebody off the wharfs. Uh, and it was terrifying. I mean, it was really a horrible experience, I have to say. I think, I think in Belinda there is a, there's a potential guilt there that somehow she is implicated in this. I think... To, I mean, now we're getting into psychoanalysis. But I think there's also this thing of... At the same time, she is sent away from the family to live in a boarding school. 
And I, you know, there's a certain time in children's lives when certain things happen and it's quite complicated and it gets a little bit entwined. Is she, is she um, somehow, you know, a culprit? Perhaps is she also in cahoots with this murderous, you know, sort of thing? So I do think you're completely 100% correct in saying that a lot of this work is about her dealing with this early trauma. It's about dealing with other traumas as well, which are part of the historical context of um, Belgium mm. and Europe in general and now, of course. But it is also her way of transforming and giving back, giving life to these things that as a child she was worried yes. about. I think yes. so. I think yeah. so completely. Yeah. Yes. Of course, she's close to Flanders. Flanders Field oh, is well. where thousands and thousands of soldiers are buried. Yes. To live in that. Cheers. <laughs> Claire, I, I read that speaking of being horrified when you're young, well, when she went to live in, in the boarding school, the first painting that made a great impact on her was by Hieronymus Bosch, no less. <laughs> and it was Christ carrying the cross, but it was surrounded by ghoulish figures, horrifying figures. But, and, and that's sort of there, but there's also this culture of very mannered art, um, very mannered religious art. And I wonder, Claire, whether you think um, that that she, her work is, is, a, is a kind of visceral reaction to the mannerism of, of that way of dealing with. Well, that's very interesting that you point out, you mentioned the Bosch, I, I, I didn't realize that. And one thing that occurs to me is that, and this ties in with what you've been saying, Juliana, that um, for, for catharsis to, to embrace drama, one, there has to be um, a kind of a resolution and that, and that affected drama comes from, I think it's, you know, the, the Greeks exploited this. You, you had um, the polarities of human experience, whether it's, um, you know, love and death. Um, uh, Wasn't that a Woody Allen film? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, I played well, Mrs. Goldstein, exactly. actually. Exactly. I mean, you know, he, he, he's a good classicist. Um, so, so in order to, to balance the darkness, you need some lightness. You need some light, and of course, you know Shakespeare is, you know, the great exponent of, of this, you know, quintessential understanding of drama and what we need for catharsis. Now, where is the catharsis? Where is the balancing? Are you ingredient now? Are you referring to to Belinda? Yes, to Belinda. A lack of narrative. A lack of narrative. Now, now. At least that's what I look for. And, and when I look at her work and when I, I see, perhaps, as you've said, framing um, Bosch, and if people know Bosch's um, work, it has um, Christ in the centre and Christ is, um, is a, a rather harmless-looking um, European uh, surrounded by these nasty, gaulish, um, grotesque faces, and I think that contrast of the rather serene, sort of, you know, benign, benign is heightened <coughs> by having the contrast of these horrible, tormenting, girlish, ugly, crude figures. It works because of the contrast, you know, 
we can go back to Leonardo to see um, that kind of ex exploitation. And if you didn't have one, then the work wouldn't be successful. That's what I was looking for in Belinda's work. Well, let me give you a, a quote from her. <clears throat> she says of her sculpture, my work has no narrative, no illustrative, no anecdotal content. There is no story, no unequivocal meaning. Now, is this her way of being anything to anybody, a sort of tabula rasa? Is this a strength of her work, or is it a weakness? You seem to be pointing to an absence of something that, you, that is lacking. I think, for me, it's a weakness because I, I come as a person who engages and seeks from, from, from art, whether it's literature, music, um, the visual arts, I expect a communicative experience and a communicative experience happening at the most basic and really the only way we have to communicate as human beings is to experience some fundamental um, instinct, recognition of shared humanity. See, that's where, that's where I think... <laughs> I, understand, I understand what you're saying, but for me, I don't want to be let off so easy. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a very demanding show. I, I, oh, I, yes. I, I, I absolutely think it, it doesn't give you an easy out, mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't let you off the hook so quickly. So the narrative, you know, that you seek in easy parables and things is, is not there for you to... You have to actually really encounter this yourself. I feel you have to come to a state of grace with mortality, uh, with tremendousness. But I do think there is, and I think of the thing ensemble, of course, I do think that there is uh, a place of, of residence for um, release, and that is in the cabinet. The cabinet, with its, its material sense of forest, its open doors, is a kind of invitation for you to take your mind elsewhere. It's quite peaceful work, I think. It's a Jungian space. It's a, a space in which I think you can take the load, the doom, uh, from, from the, I love that word, I mean, use a lot. Um, you, you can take that heaviness from the big space and you can go into that side chapel where you have the trees and the in, invitation to go, if you like, intellectually, sentimentally, metaphorically, philosophically into that forest. And for a little moment there, you can let yourself go. And I think that you can deposit in that some of that anxiety. I, I think people coming out of that room feel as though they've gone through a journey. Of course, Jung would always say that the journey in the forest is very much about finding the self, you know, mm -hmm. and coming out of, of the thing, the labyrinthine sort of thing, mm -hmm. coming out of that and then encountering that big thing again that you've, you've dealt with but Julia, in some way. It's your own narrative. Yeah. Julia, I want to ask you about that because when I think of the vitrine, that uh, the wooden cabinet, that's the only sort of piece of of kind of civilizational. Um, everything else is elemental. That's why I think this it's is, that's why I think it's a psychological space because it's a twentieth century space. 
Right. It's, it's the culturalized brain, if, yes. if you want. And I think that's, that's the other element um, yes. I would bring together. You know, we, 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 we can't help ourselves. We are in post, we've been through a postmodern mm. kind of uh, recompense, if you want. Mm. Uh, and through that, we've, we've also assembled to the spiritual, to the humanist, the psychological as well. And now we're forced to bring those things forward. And I think Belinda is, is challenging us now with, well, we've got all of this load up, what are we going to kind of do with it? Uh, it's, it's not at all cynically done. It, it is without question one of the least cynical uh, works that you would find in contemporary art, oh, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's a, I don't mean it's sincere, I simply mean it's yeah. not cynical. Mm -hmm. You know, there's cynical. nothing there that is ironic. <laughs> no, no, it's not an irony. Yeah, <laughs> not much no, no, in fact, in fact, my instinct was that that to bring some sense of yeah that, that it was very oh burdened that she is burdened she is burdened though yes. and I think you know we live in we live in hard times I mean the Flanders field of course but there is also uh, the contemporary horror around us yes. every day in the newspapers on the television so actually yes. in places so the question is. Those images which we see, the decapitated bodies, the bodies that have been uh, thrown asunder by suicide bombs, which we say, oh, mm. we saw that, we saw that image mm. yesterday, yeah. you know, where's the new one? Mm. Uh, that repetition it, can lead one yes, to be... But to the be question one. is, does this work detach us mm. from, from the body, or does it bring it bring us closer. Is, the, is there a clarity about this? Does it, is it one or the other? I mean, I, I think that's a, a legitimate question when you say, where's the narrative? Where's the meaning? Can it also result in people just walking in and saying, oh, you know, walking, walking by and not, not engaging? Does it feed on our detachment to the body? Can I just pick up on that, Rachel? I think she is, in one way, she's extraordinarily brave. And I wonder whether, whether the popular culture of Belgium has not, has not yet exploited the um, forensic detective shows that we're so... <laughs> the CSI. The CSI. The CSI. Yes, exactly. The body parts lady, mm. my husband calls silent witness. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite... Um, intrigued by the fact that, you know, just to take some witness, I've been watching that for five years, and every series, the anatomical details become more and more and more grotesque and more and more banal. And I think, well, how far up can you ratchet the horror yuck factor? What's happening here? And I, I mean that quite sincerely. No, I think that does habituate people. Yes. And I, as, I, as I think that the constant showing of horrendous events you know, tends to make you just... So now, I like to think that Belinda, in fact, helps us re-encounter the body, again, as a metaphor. I mean, we're, we are not looking at, you know, real bodies, we're looking at sculptures, but we're looking at, I think, highly sympathetic bodies. I mean, the crouching body, for instance, is a, is a beautiful thing. I mean, when you come upon it, first of all, because its back is to us. Mm -hmm. You're not quite sure. I mean, it does that double take thing that 
also happens with the horses. You're not quite certain what you're about to encounter. Will it be simply horrid when you get around there? Will it, will it have some mangle of a thing because we've just experienced the intestinal mm. inside work? It's such a tender work. When you get around to the front of it, then you see the folds of flesh there and the way in which the pillow is hugged. It's protecting itself. Or is it loving? You know, I mean, it, it, I think the beauty for me of Belinda's work is that it lives in ambiguity, uh, and that's why it is demanding. There, there, isn't, there isn't a right reading. There is going to be a complicated set of readings that uh, will leave us, I still, in a, in a sense, contemplating. I mean, I think and I hope when people leave the space, they will still be thinking about the show, still be grappling in some way with the, the enormity of what they've encountered, not just physically, but you know, emotionally, intellectually. It's a lot to take on. Uh, and for, my, for myself, I think that's actually, it's okay for people to need to grapple with mm. those things. But can I just pick up on that? I don't think necessarily because one, one brings a narrative, whether it's a mythological narrative, whether it's an explicit narrative, that that is always going to let us off the hook, as you say, because inevitably, we, we never bring a narrative. We always bring our narrative and our experience, don't we? Yes, although I think if we subscribe, for instance, to a Christian morality, uh, say, you know, there, there is a script there that, that gives you a kind of um, moral compass of a sort. For a lot of people, that, that is no longer um, perhaps useful or legitimate. Mm -hmm. um, sure. you know, as a humanist, I think you have to form your own ethical coordinates. You know, I, I often prefer to use the word ethics as compared to morality because I think morality is often rather loaded. And I, I think it's hard for us. We're, we're, we have to get those coordinates uh, aligned all the time and realigned all the time. The responsibility is on us. So that's what I mean about the simplicity of a narrative that tells you at the end, you know, you will be um, forgiven, absolved, you know. I don't want to be let off the hook that oh, because much because I have a responsibility to, yes. to oh, work on it all of the time. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's what happens when we engage in the invitation to identify with the narrative because we're, it's the process, it's the putting ourselves into the story. It's, it's the where does my story, where does my understanding of my humanity where does that meet with and where does that intersect with the particular narrative I see now? And so I think you, you don't, yes, you don't think the contemplation of mortality, which of course is the final end of the story mm. in certain ways, um, makes you actually contemplate the here and the now and the, the need therefore to live a good, a good life, a, a, a useful, responsible... I mean, for me, I think the contemplation of Mortality is knowing that I have a limited amount of time to achieve as much mm -hmm. as I possibly can. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, to the betterment of you know many yes. <laughs> or, or whatever. But you know, I mean, to me, that that is that is the purpose of the contemplation of mortality, as it is with the still lives that you mentioned yes. earlier. Yes, that's that. You know, that's the same narrative, isn't it? And yet, for me, the contemplation of mortality is actually the sense of being part of a larger cycle. Mm -hmm where I have metamorphosis, metamorphosis <laughs> but where I give back and what, and what must die also then is going to be 
contribute and indeed we need. And to be reborn. Yes. And can, I just, can I just intervene there? Yeah. Because <laughs> one of the things about these works is that they are freezing the moment of death. The, these are made by someone who is fascinated by death and dead things. And they remain dead. They are forever embalmed. I mean, these are almost like looking at embalmed figures. So is this a kind of freezing of death? Is this the last taboo that you, you kind of, um, you depict death, you accept it, it doesn't move on, it's just there. It's, it's not going to dissolve into dust and be reborn. Even the trees are dead and desiccated. They are not evidence of having been reborn. They are at the end of their cycle. It's almost as if everything is at the absolute end. No, they're in the middle because are they in the middle? The materiality of the work. You know, you, you have to always remember that artists use material as a form of metaphor as well. The materiality of the work is the wax. apt to change. You know, wax will, will perhaps... wax is used for death masks. Yes, yes, it is, but it but it also is subject to the conditions of temperature. Uh, things like that, you know, it, it is a transformative material itself, wood, you know, changes, transforms, everything here is very organic and it is, it's still in a process of, of transformation and I think, you know, in that way Belinda carries her metaphor through in a number of levels, it's very beautiful that, I mean, it's a very complete project in that way for me. Can and, I and just and one, yes. and one thing to say, just yes. in case people yes. think that the young yes. man who is the model for uh, mm -hmm. the pillow is dead, uh, you know, that was cast from a real person, yes. quite quite lively dancer, uh, that, which is why he has a lovely sort of you know musculature. So she doesn't always work with um, animals who are dead. Uh, she 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 frequently works with live people, and increasingly she works with some. Um, very, very agile bodies in order to explore the more um, fanciful metamorphosis of bodies and branches and things like yes. that. She often uses dancers. Beautiful. I must say I, I love that um, particular one yeah. of hugging the pillow. It's mm. very tender, very soft. I think she says the pillow is even a symbol of hope. But I'm still concerned about the obsession or the consistent theme of the headless beings, the headless horses, the headless people. I think she's going to be doing actually a, uh, a show, a collection of heads. So she, she where did <laughs> the heads go? <laughs> Somewhere in the you know bucket over there. So it what she's but it's it's an interesting again. It's that it's that desiccated the the sense of um, truncation, truncation, depersonalization. And I have to say that, that that's, a, that's, for me, always going to be a difficult moment, a difficult encounter with something that is headless, because today we are of this world where Al-Qaeda uh, tries to horrify us by showing videos of decapitated people. These are the most horrible things you can imagine. Uh, and, and, and here it is being reproduced in a different way, perhaps loving way, certainly not to horrify us, but they still horrify me. It's such a denial of humanity that's what 
I think, well, see, I think it's it's about not individuating those things. I think it's actually about permitting those bodies to be everybody's. Mm -hmm. If, if you have, if you have a, it does, mm -hmm. yeah. well, that must be right then. It must um, be right. Because if, if you have a head, it could, it could be seen as a portrait, or it could be seen as that particular person's condition, whereas I think the absence of the head releases that body into that contemplative space. Mm. Horrible though it may be, but I think that it also provides for an amazing tenderness too. You almost want to put your your head there. And so I think, again, she is asking us metaphorically to think, to put ourselves in that yes. position, to, to actually complete those things in certain ways. Let me ask you about the antlers. These are, um, what, five? Four? Four? One, two, three, four. 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 Collection of antlers. These normally antlers are the crown of one of the most beautiful, beautiful, beautiful uh, animals, and often with religious uh, symbology. Um, Claire, what did they say to you as they hung there, uh, bloodied, ripped from the heads? Mm -hmm. Strangely, I had two, um, two reactions, both sort of historical reactions. The first one was one of my worst museum encounters um, <laughs> was in Vienna when I went into a hunting museum. And the hunting museum featured all kinds of historic memorabilia of the hunt, including masses of um, uh, trophies. And, and I pretty soon decided that this wasn't for me. So <laughs> when you go to Vienna, miss that museum. And most European capitals have one. The other one was Christian iconography. There were two saints, Saint Eustace and Saint Hubert, who both quite extraordinarily are very popular saints in Flanders. And both of them, the, the stories obviously intersect. They concern the story of, um, in one case, an early Christian martyr, and in the other case, um, a rich kid who loves the good life and, of course, the good life in the 8th century, you know, meant going off and, and hunting and indulging in the hunt. Now, both of these people come to an experience of, of transcendence, of conversion, through seeing on a majestic animal, a deer, so through a vision of Christ, appears to them Christ between the antlers. Now, I thought it's, you know, countless numbers of images actually show either one of the figures usually sort of standing in awe or kneeling as they face this vision of an image of Christ appearing between the antlers. Now, I thought, this is extraordinary. This is this, is this idea of how does one encounter the transcendent, the supernatural, the awesome, one encounters it in nature. And not unsurprisingly, in Northern Europe, in a country that has a long tradition of, of um, you know, engaging with, with nature, with the hunt, um, with a sense of the sacred um, awe of animals like deer. And I thought that was rather extraordinary. Now, to some degree, I think Belinda is perhaps subverting. 
she could be subverting um, that resonance because, of course, the, the antlers um, are no longer thrust up. It's not sublime. But that also is, you know, a very Christian um, metaphor because it's the idea of, of Christ, in fact, um, is a figure that resonated um, with all classes uh, because he was, he was abject. In, in his suffering, one encounters the suffering of um, those who are powerless, um, those who are condemned, those who are marginalised. One, one finds the paradox of power, but not worldly power, of love, um, not subjugation. So one can even perhaps see that being hinted at. I think, of, I think they are about seduction. <laughs> and I think they are about the danger of seduction. I think they are, um, well, you know, antlers, of course, are part of the um, apparatus of attraction. And if we, if we think about what Elizabeth Gross um, talks about when she refers to the way in which artists also um, parade a kind of excess, a sort of libidinous excess to attract. That's the artistic enterprise in a certain way. But it's also the, the enterprise of the seducer. It's also the enterprise of the lover. Oh, of course. And I suppose I go to a slightly more mythological pagan place when I look at the antlers and I think this is a, this is a, um, a tale of seduction and perhaps the after effects of seduction. There's danger in seduction. Absolutely. There's danger in succumbing to seduction. Mm -hmm. And that's why the trophy-like uh, arrangement too could well be, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I go back to Diane and Actium. Actium. Yeah, because uh, that, he, he, of course, is transformed into uh, a deer and, you know, then is um, eaten by his own huntsmen and dogs uh, after this, you know, failed trash. <laughs> There's not much humour in either of these. No, it's not funny, but you know. Um. <laughs> so the question is actually, since we are close to the end of this hour, I want to ask you whether you think there is any place in her work for humour, for levity, for the ageing body, which when you have it, it starts to, there are only two reactions you can have. One is to cry every single time you look yourself in the mirror in the morning and at night. And the other is to laugh hysterically, and it does help to do the latter. The question is, is she laughing at all anywhere in her work? And perhaps, Juliana, you know more of it, but uh, Claire, what would you like to see? How would it look? Oh, I'd like to see, I'd like to see a little hint of levity, a little hint of levity because, because funnily enough, sorry about the pun, <laughs> but in a lot of those stories of the martyrs, I think because the stories use all kind of rhetorical effects, which we in our rather literal way of reading it, are no longer capable of picking up. I think there's actually a great deal of humour there. And I think we, we miss that, we lose that. And I think perhaps we forget that, you know, 
we didn't invent irony. <laughs> right. Mm. Exactly. I, you know, I can live without the humour okay. because I think there is the tenderness. Mm. And I think if you have the tenderness, mm. then you perhaps don't need to go for. Mm. Uh, I, I think we are very seduced often by the, the need for the postmodern laugh or the back to you, you know, carnival. Uh, and sometimes it's it's not required. What is required is a sense of purposeful humanity mm -hmm. uh, and to locate that in that tenderness, which is yes. in the small things, the pillows, the blankets, the string which supports the wonky little cradle. Uh, that is enough for me uh, in this instance. And next show I'll show you something very hilarious. Um, but, you know, I, th I think that just every now and then, it's all right to work with a really serious artist, yes. one who is who is yes. not there to play to the to the yes. to the field, not to there the to do the, the mm. thing, but is nevertheless not shying away from a different form of spectacle which can be tremendous, difficult, demanding, all of those things, but not let me off the hook so much. I must say her her comments that about herself, I look for beauty in death, makes me think that perhaps we are going to have to look for beauty in death more and more as we're surrounded by more images of it. Um, she reminded me a lot of someone of a couple of generations earlier than her, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, an Austrian who looked remarkably like her and also wore a white coat everywhere and uh, made her entire career of finding beauty in death and uh, do, doing it on the psychological and pastoral mm. side. I find them very similar women, mm. even physically. But let me just share this last bit with you. You may be surprised to, to know that one of her favorite songwriters is Nick Cave. <laughs> this is from his song about Paul. You are my new God. One day of spiritual silence, this world won't seem so odd. When we form a new alliance to take us far above the norm, to take us to a world reborn, to take us to the plane of which we seek, you turn my water into wine, you send a shiver down my spine. Let me touch the things I see. I'll follow you because you are the one in the orange sky. Well, I just wonder what Belinda thinks of when she hears those, those uh, lyrics and whether she ever plays Nick Cave while she's working away at those sculptures. She's a very complex woman, obviously, and these elements of her work that we're able to see here I think are a great window into a large, vast body of a highly, highly revered sculptor. Um, so I'd like to thank you, Juliana and Claire, for helping us um, in this part of the discussion. We do have time, I think, to open it out to the audience, if, ever there, if there are questions, uh, if you've had actions, uh, reactions to the work, uh, some questions or comments you'd like to share, please do. I think... Yes, Jane. Jane Morley, everybody. Is that a 
Yeah, that's a good idea. Africa has a long history, tradition with horses. Uh, with horses, that's true. Yes, one that leads to mind. I know we had the year of the penis, and we've had the year of the horse. But we also had the um, Biennale yeah. visits of the hanging, yes. of the hanging walls, which was quite... The, the Maurizio Catalan. Yeah, Catalan, yes, in, in Sydney then. And, um, but on the way here, I was thinking about um, decayed flesh and um, hanging flesh and how this relates up um, to your um, discussions, hanging flesh as in um, crucifixion and also in butcher shops. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I'd like you to comment too on the Hearst. I've just seen um, Damien Hearst's yes. work with the with the head of uh, calf and flies, yes. which was perhaps more immediate to death Think than, um, uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. Can you just rephrase Yeah, uh, Jane, Jane is asking me to comment on um, the, the, the prevalence of, of um, I suppose, uh, the use of animals, etc. Maurizio Catalan, who also uses um, horses and, and Damien Hurst, who you've just seen recently in London. Or, I think Damien comes from a pop sensibility. That would be my first thing to say. He comes from a very different place to Belinda, who I think links quite deliberately back to uh, the Trecento, the, the Manners period, in, in a very um, sincere and um, cynical fashion. Whereas I think that Damien is coming from a pop sensibility that is about... Um, um, spectacle that's you know a, a, a little bit empty and those sort of things. I like his work very much, but I just think it's it's quite a different register. It's a completely different tone. Maurizio's work I find very interesting, but I have to say now his horses jammed into the wall or hanging like that look a little polite as compared to Belinda's, um, and I. Just the fact that he's not interested in wound at all. He's, he's interested in that uncanny um, disappearance, if you want, through the, through the war. Mm. He's, he's interested in the redundancy of the revolution, I think, a little bit. So I think his is, his is a different take. Whereas Belinda, with these wounds that we have on the, on the hide and so forth, she's just kind of brought it up a real notch somehow. But I think they're each of them very different registers of work, pop sensibility, postmodern sensibility, and in fact, I think, really not even modernism with Belinda. I think she is still working through something um, more ancient than that in a, in a fashion. The wound. The wound, it's very yeah. important. Which you can see. Yeah, Back there. Um, if... Yeah, Anna, can you whip that down there? It's better to have the mic, because and then we all can share the question. Hi, um, thank you. Um, I'm just, uh, I, what, what I've been hearing, it's just a comment, it's not really a question, but um, what I've been hearing is a, an extended discussion that's been quite articulate, perhaps without um, mentioning the word, but a, a discussion about cadaverousness and about okay. the ambiguity that is. Sorry, could you say the word again? I think we'll... Uh, cadaver. Cadaver, so, so yeah. cadaverousness. Mm -hmm. and how that is ambiguity right there. And that we, um, you know, that like, 
you know, if, if we see a cadaver of a relative and that's part of the understanding um, that we say goodbye to someone and we, and we move on and that becomes part of that. Um, perhaps, uh, yeah, but perhaps the animals, not to say that we aren't animals, but perhaps the animals and the trees are one step away from recognising, like, the recognising these works as mirrors of ourselves. So in that regard, we're sort of dealing with death, but one step back is a, an easier way to deal with death, and, and in a sympathetic way, because we can look at these animals or these trees and, and, and still recognise them, but not face-to-face -face with what we know is us in human form in that regard. But yeah, it, it, a, um, yeah, a, 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 an articulate discussion of cadavers. That's, that's what I'm hearing, <laughs> and I'm delighted to, to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I don't know if I caught everything that you, you said, so I apologise if I missed it, but um, in, your, in your sort of juxtaposing you know, the, the cadaver of the human and, and then the sort of the the synecdoche, the, the forms from the animal um, in, our, in the way we respond to them. Um, we're responding um, from human consciousness. Now, now, I know that there's a lot of work that's been done um, in, in science uh, about, you know, to what degree um, non-human species Maybe may have some sense of, of consciousness or of, of suffering, of death. Um, but I, I think that's the most intriguing insight. Yeah. Um, my question sort of picks up on that as well. When you were mentioning, um, sorry, I'm not sure if your name, Claire, Claire um, that you found that she doesn't really balance sort of the horror of death. I think. Most artists would say that they ha are compelled to make art, and even if no one looked at it, they'd probably make it. So for me, looking at the work, I think that Belind probably, her reasoning of death for her personally, art is a sort of lifelong question that's sort of never answered for artists. So for her, I see it in her experience of the materials, you know, that problem solving. How does she, you know, work through the wax and the forms? And for her, I think that's probably how she comes to terms with it, but for us as the viewer, we sort of are, you're right, left a little bit. Thank you. Know, you. Yeah. Thank you, and I think that that's perhaps what um, Juliana was saying, and I remember when we were, um, before um, the talk, um, Juliana was describing the experience of having um, Berlinda here, uh, and just that, just that unique um, uh, event of having the artist in in the process of discussing planning um enacting in a sense that the performance uh, and the performance is so tangible um and uh something that that is real in every sense of the word um, it was an amazing industry actually and um when we hoisted the, the conjoint i mean that was a truly Emotional day. I think everybody who was here felt it, and it, it really was—it was—it was a little bit like 
the scene of the crucifixion. Yes. And I imagine when we bring the horses down, it will be like the deposition. Deposition. Uh, I mean, it was actually kind of extraordinary. There was this palpable sense that something tremendous was happening and something that should be revered also. And, and of course, we were completely concerned it would stay up, you know, that it was, uh, that it was stable enough, that, you know, that, that everything would be good. And, you know, that's right. I mean, there is a, a tremendous amount of practicality that goes in there. And when Belinda is working with the form, she is also manipulating them to sculpt them. You know, they're, they're not just fundamentally as she finds them. She's, she's working that material, and that's, of course, the transformative art experience. It's, it's not simply a, 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 an easy transformation from one thing to the other, put some hard on it. She's actually creating a form here. And, you know, so it goes back to a very um, fundamental sculptural process. It's very interesting. I mean, you know, she's one of the few people at the moment, I think, really doing that and doing it herself. It's not sent away to a workshop for other people to deal with. It's not sent away to some silversmith who's talented at that or a foundry. She's doing that work herself with her team. Very hands-on art. Which is, in fact, is very typical of um, the creation of art in the late Middle Ages. Touch, yeah. Yes, yeah. so you'd have, you'd have the artist um, who would, in fact, combine all of those um, different techniques. But I also think it's part of her cathartic mm. process. She, mm. was, she, she must put her hands on those things. You know, mm. It's her responsibility. Mm. She doesn't you know, deflect that responsibility to somebody else. And I think that that's the ethic that runs through the entire project in a sort of way. Okay. Uh, I think I should draw this to a close unless there are other questions. Uh, oh, Jane. oh, yes. Oh, please. Yes. A technical question from our friend um, Mona. Hello, Jane. How are you? Nice to see you. Thanks for coming. Thanks very much. Thank you, all of you. Um, I just wanted to ask two things about mainly the conjoined horses, but all of them are, are under the hide. Is it fiberglass? What is the. Um, yeah, it's, it's, yes, it's, it's um, made from a kind of fiberglass sort of thing, construction. Having shipped them, yeah, how much does them. it weigh? For me? It's quite heavy. It's quite heavy uh, because, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, they're big things. Um, so that, that pillar is uh, over one tonne. That's a very heavy pillar, which comes from Ghent. And uh, the horse is, is probably about 400 or... It, it's, it's pretty heavy, but we needed six people to manage it. To get it up, I suppose that gives you a bit of a sense of it. So it's, it's not a flimsy thing. I mean, it's it's you know, um, but it's still it's hollow inside. It's it's you know, I mean, this is this is the uh, beautiful uh, deceit of the work in a, in a fashion. I mean, you you truly believe in the the thing being um, of body, but it, but it's a vessel, and of course you know that is also part of that uh, metaphoric conveyance that it is a vessel, you know, metaphoric conveyance. Yeah. I'm struck by the paradox of her work because on the one hand, when I spoke to the attendant who was standing around today, I asked him, what is it like to stand in front of these horses? And he said, well, it was a shock and it was horrifying. But then it was all right because then I became desensitized to it and then it was all right. I thought, oh, is that the reaction you want, to be desensitized? 
isn't that what we rail against, or at least I do? Interestingly, Belinda doesn't believe that. She believes that these pieces will make you want to come closer to them and see that the emotionality, even in these headless torsos wrapped in blankets, some of them, uh, will actually draw you into the emotions inside the body. Paradox for sure, one that keeps going round and round, and perhaps it is the condition that we are in. Ooh, what a dark and drear place to end. But anyway, fortunately, there is wine for us to enjoy. You can walk around and, uh, and um, you know, ask us any more questions, uh, or just tell us some jokes. I think, we, I think it's probably time for a joke or two. I know Monty Python would have made a meal of this if they wanted to. Um, but let me not um, undermine the seriousness of this work and its beauty, which I hope you will be able to appreciate some more uh, after this conversation. Again, Juliana and Claire, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Rachel. Thank you.